Okay, so we have, again, here in, in Genesis, we're walking through the book of Genesis. We're taking it kind of um, a chunk at a time. And we have kind of a large section here this morning. So we're going to read through the whole section together. Um, I'll make some comments um, just along the way that hopefully will be helpful. And then we'll look at the outline kind of stepping back from this big section and considering uh, four points. And you can find those points in the bulletin or they'll be up on the screen here. So Genesis 30, beginning in verse 25, we're, we're leaving off where we, or starting up where we left off last week and going through the end of chapter 31. So if you're using, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you and you can turn to page 24 and find our passage for this morning there on page 24. All right, so Genesis 30, beginning in verse 25, all the way through the end of chapter 31. So let's enter into this story and see what God has to say to us through it. All right, so this is Jacob and his family still under Laban's, this is uh, his father-in-law's kind of thumb, and verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, so all these kids have been born, it's kind of a circus with um, Rachel and Leah and their maidservants and all the babies and all that. And finally, Rachel, who had been barren, bears Joseph. And Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. So I've kept up my end of the bargain. I didn't have any money, but in order to provide, in a sense, a dowry for these wives, um, he served, and his time was done. His debt was paid. He had the right to return home to the promised land, back to Canaan. But Laban said to him, If I've found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Okay, Which, if you think that, that offer kind of echoes his original deal, right? <laughs> in the original deal, he exploited Jacob once, he certainly will do it again. This guy can't be trusted. So Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? So Laban said to him, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. I don't want you to give me anything. I'm not going to be beholden to you. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. In other words, I'll work for a wage, but I'm not going to be beholden to your gift because you'll use it against me. You'll use it as leverage and control. So I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. So point being, normally that was a kind of a small minority. 
of the flock that would be characterized that way with the spots and speckles and all of that. So Jacob, in a sense, is kind of taking a pretty, you know, slim wage here, and Laban thinks he's really getting a great one. But that day, Laban removed, so even though he had a good deal here, Laban still is working to his own advantage and exploiting Jacob. Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. In other words, the ones that would probably bear young with the spots and the speckles, we're just going to send him away. He's just totally taking advantage of him. So then there's this weird thing that goes on in verse 37. What in the world is going on here? Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. <laughs> he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. So we're like, okay, this is really weird. What is going on here? Well, folk tradition said there were customs of the time. You know, whatever's in the visual field of an animal as it breeds leaves its mark on the offspring. So this is kind of like sympathetic magic. You know what that phrase means? Um, uh, if an animal sees something while it's doing its thing, then it'll, it'll result in something else. It's almost like voodoo, you know? Anyway, so Jacob, verse, verse 40, Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So he's been pretty shrewd here, right? Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me, literally made a fool of me, and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. So you see, Laban is like trying to fight God because God is with Jacob. So he's not trying to simply outmaneuver Jacob. He's actually trying to outmaneuver God. That's not going to work. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that were mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. 
for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Okay, so this gives a little bit of explanation for why he did that weird thing with the sticks, okay? But it also shows that this is not the result of, you know, folk tradition working, but God is miraculously working to protect his son Jacob and also to provide for him. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me, back in chapter 28. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So the bride price was actually supposed to, in that time, be saved by the father, almost like a trust, in case his daughter was ever widowed or divorced. And so, of course, Jacob didn't have any money to give a dowry, but he had given years and years of labor. So the wage equivalent should have been saved up for the sake of Laban's daughters. But instead, Laban just benefited personally from Jacob's labor and set nothing aside for his daughters. So they say, we're with you. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods which we have to ask, why? Did she want their favor? You know, was she, was she an idolater, a pagan? Did she view them like lucky charms for protection or blessing? Or was it out of spite, maybe? Or does she think that maybe this will keep Laban from being able to use them against Jacob and his company? Um, we don't really know, but they play into the story later here. Let's keep going. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling them that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, it's not your place to judge. And God is intervening here to protect Jacob. And Laban overtook Jacob. You actually have like military-like language here, which heightens the tension. They fled. Laban pursued and overtook. It's all military language. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? It's kind of like the pot calling the kettle black, right? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Right. So we know Laban's, you know, character by now, so we know this is spin and manipulation. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to harm you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, 
be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen those household gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and then into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Pretty pathetic gods if you can, you know, just kind of, they're totally impotent to do anything. Laban felt all around the tent, but didn't find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, you can imagine this is like 20 years of bitterness and resentment just kind of spilling out. What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my, my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I've served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So, (laughs) he doesn't back down. He's just so selfish and narcissistic, but he also realizes that he's lost. And so this is kind of like a a face-saving move that Laban initiates this covenant. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. So this pile of stones is going to be a witness to what happens there with this covenant. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, which is Aramaic for witness heap. But Jacob called it Galid, which is Hebrew for witness heap. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or you take wives beside my daughters... Although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of, our, of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, that's a name for God, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. Oftentimes they would eat, kind of ratifying that covenant. And it's a worship context, so you're actually doing this before God. God's going to keep us to this pact, this treaty. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. (laughs) So there we go. It's really obvious how this is totally relevant to us today, right? So I probably don't even need to point anything out. It just just screams out from the page. Now you're probably going, (laughs) what in the world? That was really long. Okay, so step back and see a few things. First off, let's notice some poetic justice here. Okay, do you know what poetic justice is? It it occurs when a just punishment or reward comes around to someone, oftentimes through an ironic twist of fate or some unexpected means. So this happens in movies all the time. Okay, so somebody is, you know, just abusive or exploitative. There's this villain and he does these things and then it comes around to bite him. And there's this sweet poetic justice when he gets his just desserts, okay? It's kind of like reaping what you sow, only with a little extra flair, okay? So the point is, this is God's world that we live in. This is God's world that they were living in. And you know what? It often seems like the bad guys win or they get away with murder. And those that have done the right thing suffer. So, Jacob was like that for 20 years, faithfully serving his father-in-law, constantly being exploited. 20 years, you know, wages changed 10 times. So poetic justice is God's justice and his creativity, actually, meeting on earth in a way that we can see. So it's really clear here in the life of Laban, he had been a deceiver and a cheat and a selfish man, right? And now, what's happening to him in this passage? He is getting a taste of his own medicine. He is reaping what he's sown. So one commentator put it like this, Laban's greed robs him. You see that ironic twist of fate that brings about God's justice? That's poetic justice. It's this ironic twist of faith. So he's trying to take advantage of his daughters, his son-in-law, for the sake of his own wealth. And what happens to him? He loses them all. And so this is a cautionary tale. We've seen a lot of cautionary tales in Genesis. It's also an encouragement. If you have to deal with people who take advantage of you, or deceive you or exploit you, guess what? They live in God's world. So you may have to wait for it. Jacob had to wait 20 years. In fact, we may have to wait until Jesus comes back and nobody gets away with everything because that's when the judge is going to take everything and put it into the open. 
But again, we live in God's world, so justice will ultimately be done. Listen to this summary by Bruce Waltke. Laban is a classic example of sin's irrationality. The deluded scoundrel who has repeatedly cheated Jacob unabashedly complains that Jacob has wronged him. He's blind to the significance of the dream that vindicates Jacob and condemns him. Remember, don't do anything, don't say anything good or bad. God stops him in his tracks. He is deaf to the silence of his daughters, which, which shouts out against his delusion because they didn't stick up for him. He continues to claim pretentiously his right to the property and offers no apology. Contrary to all evidence, he presents himself a loving father full of beneficence. Oh, I would have sent you off with, you know, mirth and tambourines. Come on who would have sent his homesick nephew and family away with a song, though he has egregiously wronged his daughters, he makes Jacob swear not to wrong them. Laban is a man without excuse. So the very reason that Jacob has two wives is because Laban was a, a deceiver, and he gave Jacob his older daughter when he had worked seven years for the younger daughter. So narcissism isn't a new thing. This fool is made a fool. God will not be mocked. They will reap what they sow. God will always get the last laugh. So that should be a cautionary tale to us to guard against selfishness and, you know, using people rather than blessing and serving them. But also it's an encouragement because when we have been on the receiving end of that kind of exploitation, we can trust that God will eventually make things right. So, um, multiple examples here in this passage. Remember, Laban said to Jacob, look at 31:26. What have you done that you tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Does that phrase, what have you done, sound familiar? <laughs> Those are the same words that Jacob spoke to Laban when he secretly swapped Leah for Rachel. So now those words are coming back on his own head, and they're coming out of his own mouth. Another one, look at 31.29. He says, It's in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So all he can do is threaten. The bully has lost and he's been emasculated, actually, by God. And then one last one here. So you remember how Laban deceived Jacob, swapping the wives out, right? When Jacob confronted him, he appealed to custom. Laban did. Now, he said, well, you know, where, where we live, you don't ever marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. So, you know, you can have the younger daughter, too just if you serve another seven years. So he appealed to custom. Now in 3133, when Laban is feeling around in Rachel's tent, what does she do? She appeals to custom regarding menstruation to deceive her father with regard to the household gods. You see the poetic justice there? So he used custom to deceive, now it's coming back on him.
So, poetic justice can also be positive. It can have to do with reward, okay? So, it can happen when someone who has been exploited or defrauded ends up being exonerated or compensated. So, look at 3031. He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through and, you know, remove the speckled and spotted sheep. They will be my wages. So honesty will answer for me later. Laban said, good. So he goes and removes all of them, sends them three days away. And again, normally the shepherd should expect to receive like 20% of the flock as his wages. And so this is a really pretty paltry contract or agreement. It plays into Laban's greedy hands. He exploits it further by sending all those animals away. But you know what ends up happening? It ends up becoming a setup for God to show off his glory, his miraculous provision. So Laban's deceit ends up turning back on his head, and it shows off God's ability to keep his promises, to show off his glory, because he actually enriched Jacob despite all of that attempt to fleece, pardon the pun, Jacob. All right? So, poetic justice. Secondly, promises and providence. So the passage makes it really clear that God himself and his faithfulness to keep his promises is the decisive factor in Jacob's life. Okay, it's actually the same in our lives as well. So, again, this Bruce Waltke guy writes, This narrative makes points that were ever relevant in the life of the nation, that God is not frustrated by the cheat, that justice will finally be seen to be done, and that his promises to his people of land, protection, and blessing to the nations will, despite all opposition, eventually triumph. So, despite the fact that there's still, you know, deceitfulness and you know, folk tradition, you know, with sympathetic magic and, you know, stealing household gods and all this stuff, you know, you say, where is God in this? What in the world is going on? No, God is all over this passage accomplishing his purposes despite the sin and the deception and the scheming. So God had promised, and he's going to fulfill. Remember back in 2815, God told Jacob, behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised for you. So he is going to make good on those promises. And so this doesn't ultimately depend on Jacob and his performance. It depends on God and his promise. You see that? The whole point here is that God's providence in Jacob's life, God's blessing on Jacob's life, is not based on his performance, but on God's promise. God's promise is decisive. That's what makes the ultimate difference in all of this. So it's, it's actually in spite of Jacob, right? So he sought the blessing deceitfully. He lost his homeland because of it. If, if, we, if we step back and look at the last several chapters, he did gain family and descendants, but it was through this soap opera of a circus sort of scenario with his wives. And despite all of that, despite Laban's deception and exploitation, Jacob still did multiply, and he was blessed, and he gained wealth, and he was set free from Laban by God's hand. So if God is with 
us like he was with Jacob, our future is bright. He's going to keep all of his promises even if we're in the midst of a mess and a tangle, even if it's a mess and a tangle of our own making. So Jacob learned this, and I think we can learn this from how God dealt with Jacob here. It can be instructive and also encouraging, which leads us to our third point here. Did you notice how Jacob is changing? Did you see that? Let's just look at a couple of points here. Verse 33, 30, verse 33, chapter 30, verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later. And then later when Laban tracks him down, he says, okay, go ahead, look, search through all my stuff. Did I take anything that's yours? So wait a second. Here's the deceitful schemer who took advantage of his brother and all of that and his father, and he has integrity in his work. Or... If you look at chapter 31, verse 36, he says, I faithfully served Laban for 20 years. So he was a cheater, and he's been faithful for 20 years. He bore the loss of animals torn by wild beasts or stolen. The exploiter has been absorbing loss at his own expense. This guy's changing. Think about how the, the way he talks about God. He says, the God of my father has been with me, 31.5. 31.7, but God did not permit him to harm me. 31.9, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. It's like years and years of reflection are spilling out, and now God is at the center of his life, even the interpretation of his life. And here's the kicker, I think. Do you see how Laban is, or I'm sorry, how Jacob is relating to his wives and his family? So back when they were having kids, He's like this passive pawn, you know, in the hands of his dueling wives. Now he's assuming responsibility and he's pointing his family to God and God's faithfulness. He's openly expressing faith in God and giving all the credit to God for how God has taken care of him. Look at 3141. This is striking here. These 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters. That's actually really striking. Do you see how considerate he was to his wives right there? (laughs) He doesn't take any jabs or betray resentment toward Leah. He says, I've served Laban for, I've served you for, for these years for your two daughters. So he has been a skunk and a cheat. He's been passive, aggressive. He's displayed little faith, but here he is displaying a little faith, like a mustard seed and... We're seeing God's faithfulness to take this deceiver who resented Leah and now he's being considerate of his wives and he's taking responsibility. So you have this slow, conflicted, yet discernible growth. It's actually really encouraging. So we should never glorify mess and sin and lionize weak faith or something like that as as if that's, you know, cool If you try to use the sin of the patriarchs to justify yours, you're kind of missing the point. But listen, if you came in here this morning and you're oftentimes beaten down and discouraged and questioning if you're real or if God is sick and tired of having to deal with your pathetic excuse for a life of faith, then this ought to be really encouraging to you. This is how the Bible comforts the afflicted. 
I mean, it's taken 20 years, but God is breaking through and changing this guy, slowly but surely proving him to be a man of faith. So some of us might need to be encouraged because we're so often discouraged by how prone we are to wander and how slow we are to learn. But this encouragement of, you know, the way that God has dealt with Jacob should encourage us. If he stuck with Jacob, maybe he's also still with me and for me. Maybe we need to turn that encouragement around and bring some challenge as well. Are you easily annoyed or judgmental or impatient with people who don't have it all together, as if any of us do? Maybe you don't see yourself clearly enough. Maybe you don't see how patient God has been with you. Maybe you don't see how patient God is with his people, like Jacob, like me. And so that's where we end, seeing God and how he is with people. Final point, the God of the Exodus is. Why, why do I say that? I mean, isn't Exodus the thing that happens in the next book in the Bible? Exodus? Well, the pattern actually starts long before. Look at 30, verse 26. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. It's actually literally with which I've served you. So Jacob is saying that his time under Laban has been like servitude. He's been in the house of slavery, like in bondage, under an oppressive ruler. Does that sound familiar? Look at 3142. Jacob says to Laban, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands. That language, saw my affliction, is also used in Exodus 3.7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. So, who is it that ends up getting led out of this house of slavery, Laban's house, and back to the promised land? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? (laughs) The kids, the children of Jacob, and Leah and Rachel. So, do you see how this foreshadows the Exodus? They're being called out to be led into the promised land. So, just as Pharaoh had worked to keep Israel under his thumb, Laban worked to try to keep Jacob under his thumb. But as they go, God promises to provide for them and protect them. As they go out, also, do you remember what happened in Egypt? They plundered Egypt as they headed out, right? Well, Jacob is plundering Laban on his way out also. So Exodus is like a showdown of who was God. Well, here also Laban's gods are shown to be impotent and unclean, and God is shown to be the providential, powerful one who's in charge. So this pattern just happens over and over again all through the Bible, brought out of the house of slavery to be brought into the promised land because God is a redeemer. That's the pattern. And that's our story as well. If you are in Christ, you were brought out of slavery to sin, set free from that in order to be brought in to relationship with God and one day the promised land, new heavens and new earth. We sang that desert song. We are, in a sense, going through the desert en route to the promised land. So we're not home yet. So God, the Redeemer, the reverser of fortunes, He redeems us by His providence in keeping with His promises. 
And this pattern happens over and over again. So we are delivered. We've already been delivered by the, from, for the penalty of sin, our, the penalty of our slavery to sin. We've been redeemed. And if you're still enslaved and you know your guilt and what do I do? I, I've got to atone for my sin. Only God can do that through Christ. He is the sacrificial lamb. His blood atones for our sin. You can be redeemed. But also we continue to be delivered from the power of sin as it enslaves us and kind of hooks its claws into us. God can free us. We are being redeemed. So are there things you need to be set free from today? You can be redeemed. This is the God of exoduses. He loves to deliver his people and show his power and set us free. He can do it this morning. And then one day we will be delivered from the presence of sin, fully, finally, free, redeemed forever, experiencing the freedom of the children of God fully and forever. And so we wait in hope. So Jacob's life is a little picture of the redeeming grace of God. And then we see that same pattern in the Exodus. And then through Christ, the ultimate redemption takes place. And so what we see here is the same God that we trust in to set us free from what enslaves us. And so if you are entangled in something, if you are enslaved to some sin, some idol, some functional Savior, you can be set free today, this morning. So we're going to close by singing this song, Build My Life. Okay, so... Again, we build our lives on the only one who can really free us, the one who is faithful to all of his promises. The song says, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my trust in you alone, and I will not be shaken. And so despite the ebbs and flows and the missteps and all the folly, we see that Jacob's life is increasingly built on this firm foundation because of God's faithfulness. And it calls us to trust him as well and be set free and redeemed. So let's pray and then we'll sing. God, we praise you and thank you. You are the great redeemer. You're the God of exoduses. And you have done it many times in the past and you can do it this morning for whatever may be enslaving us. So I pray that you would help us all to look in and be honest with ourselves and then look up and see you as the great Redeemer who can set us free, who will be faithful to all of your promises as we come out of the house of slavery and we walk together all the way home to the full and final freedom that we will experience in your presence forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.